0: How lame was that? I don't want to end with that. (laughs) to Cysteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm your host Stefan Schilt and in today's episode I speak with award-winning screenwriter and director Cory Chen. Cory has directed shows like Fox Tales, Wentworth, Channel 10's Five Bedrooms and the SBS series Homecoming Queens which she also executive produced. Corrie was the 2018 Film Victoria's Greg Tepper Award recipient in recognition for Outstanding Achievement in Directing. I spoke with Corrie about how she came to work in the screen industry. We discussed diversity in the local arts community and tips for work-life balance when working from home. I started off by asking Corrie how her creative work was going during Melbourne's lockdown.
1: Well, um, I had just, very luckily, just finished the show I was on, which was uh, Wentworth in March, bef- like two weeks before COVID went down. So I was lucky because I didn't have to sort of deal with the fallout of whatever that meant. Um, and my plan was to um, go into writing on a couple of projects I had. And now I was meant to start a show end of May, and that's been delayed. So it's been a couple of months um, just regrouping and – I guess like everyone else, you swing from being quite frustrated and miserable to trying to figure out (laughs) the meaning of life, which I think is very important for people in this field to try and interrogate what are we doing and why we're doing it. And strangely enough, I don't think I've really had time in the last 18 months to ask myself that question. So I've done a bit of creative soul-searching in what do I really want to do and why did I get into this in the first
0: place. And why did you – I do love that we're like 30 seconds in and you're already like existential crises, let's cut cut the shit, let's get into it.
1: <laughs> That's very common. <complicated.
0: laughs> so um, what did you find out? Have you had any epiphanies?
1: I think what's good, you know, the luxury of – Time and I am aware that I'm um, in a position where, because I don't have children or um, pets, (laughs) uh, nothing is really taking up my time other than myself uh, and my own thoughts. So, yeah, with the luxury of time, I've just been able to, you know, this industry is so fast paced and so ambition driven. Certainly. I am anyway and um, I think I've just kind of barreled from project to project and goal to goal without asking yes but why and being able to ask the why and ask yes but should I with every project that comes is um has been quite eye-opening because I'm just sort of... And with the anxiety of the current political moment to just um, take stock and go, well, what am I putting out into the world and the responsibility of the storyteller to think about the contributions to culture?
0: Does that mean you're at a point now, do you think, that you would say, no, I don't want to work on something that's like that, where in the past maybe you were like, oh, I'm more emerging, I kind of have to say yes to whatever's coming along. Is that how you're feeling maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly I'd always believed myself to be someone who um, thought quite hard about how I was going to curate my IMDb. Um, (laughs) And even if projects um, haven't turned out in the way that I had hoped they would turn out, somewhere along the line earlier on, there was something in the moral integrity of the project that I really believed in um so yeah so suffice to say that I I'd always I would like to think I'd always been that person that would say no to something that I didn't agree with but um I think the difference is certainly you know as, as a small example is um I was quite obsessed uh with the idea of you know working overseas working in the U.S. Especially because it's almost an assumption now, from everyone that that's what people should do and you know should um, aspire to.
0: Um, it's kind of like the um, short film to feature film trajectory, Australia yeah. to US, right? Like,
1: yeah, and um, and certainly not to say that I'm not interested, but I'm just it's it's a very very big question in that if I really if what drives me as a storyteller. Is to change and make culture. Why am I contributing to that in a culture that isn't mine? You know, and um, the you know, the Australian screen industry is really fighting for its life right now in a var- variety of different ways, and uh, it's made me really believe and realize that the fight that I want to be in is here,
0: right. So you're like gonna double down at home.
1: Well, I mean,
0: <laughs> this is uh, on the record. We're gonna follow up. No, we're not. <laughs> we we'll won't follow up with you.
1: Um, I, I'm more. Um, I, I think for the next little while, and I don't know what little while means in time, but just for the for the next little while, I feel like a lot of my choices will be, um, driven by my heart, whatever that means.
0: And also, I mean, there's no moving at the moment. So you, like, we can't go anywhere. So it's kind of what change can you make and what drive can you get from staying home? Like, what can you do to this industry and for this industry and for your own career while you can't go anywhere else?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's a... That's the question, isn't it? And, like, broadly speaking, um, I guess when I, uh, you know, talk about uh, making decisions driven by my heart, it's really talking about Australian stories as a, um, a holistic concept. Not to say Australian stories can't be said overseas and all of that, but um, I what made me want to get into this you know as a kid is a desire to um a desire to see stories that resembled my identity on screen and small changes and waves of storytelling have gone some way to do that but certainly uh not to the extent I would hope and you know COVID has made me think a lot about legacy and I was suddenly like well what if in 10 years time you know say I do go to the US and end up with a long list of amazing INDV credits from the US but it's not doing anything for child me, uh, and, um, and I'm still just grappling with what that means.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's also a response you said before, the political climate. There's a lot of discussions about representation across the board. Um, the Black Lives Matters conversation has obviously started people interrogating systems um, in a very important and integral way, and you've been quite vocal, like Michelle Law, um your collaborator and friend online about that can you talk a little bit about how your work is both intrinsically part of the pride of you were saying you want Australian stories to be about or for child you but then also the fight and the frustration with having to have this fight all the time and being the ones to voice things and to pull people up um
1: yes it's something that i find incredibly difficult you know i um i ...really admire uh, people like Michelle Law and Ben Law as well, in their resilience and courage in being able to constantly be be really at the coalface of these conversations and um, call people out. And uh, I absolutely stand alongside them and trying to do my bit. But um, I am someone that feels things very deeply and uh, it like, I won't deny it. It has been a really incredibly overwhelming uh, three to four weeks, I think. Um, You know, I have quite conservative parents, so I've grown up with a certain um, perception and, have really been taught to put white Australians on a level above myself. Like, um, so to suddenly really have my eyes open to how I have maybe enacted or played into um, white supremacy in little subtle ways, uh, I think has been... A, I've had my own reckoning <laughs> of um, my actions, and B, looking at my um, the the white people in my life, and there's a lot of them who you know are part of my loved ones and my closest peers, and become becoming like almost suspicious of their true intentions, and a lot of the time it's unjustified, but I think in the month last uh, last month a few of them may have been exposed to me and it's being um upsetting in that
0: sense that's deeply hurtful because it's not only yeah career but that's personal yeah, yeah and i guess the whole but the whole thing is personal that we're talking about right like you can't separate your personhood and how you're feeling about your sense of identity from fighting for these things in your yeah, career
1: yeah absolutely and uh and especially because you know this certainly how I like to work um this field is something that is driven by personal experiences and you know personal emotions so yeah the it's been a hectic few weeks and I guess I'm still trying to I'm still in the midst of dealing with the fallout of that like within myself and what I'm hoping that this next month will bring is um, like I'd like to go some way into regaining trust or whatever this new normal of trust um, looks like because, like, I kind of need it to survive.
0: Maybe I just don't want to keep dragging you down into a misery pit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm um, I'm. Um, um, look, I think... Uh, what is important to be a modern person of colour is, um, you know, there is – I feel like I have a responsibility to find the tools of resilience, and um, I am still trying to learn what that looks like. Uh, and even though, you know, I go through phases of uh, I don't want to talk about this ever again, I don't want to deal with it, In to realising – Yes, but what – at the same time, what is my responsibility? Um, because I – you know, there there aren't a lot of Asian directors in Australia, certainly not many Asian female directors, and um, I do feel like being in that position means that, um, you know, I do – I have to carry some of the burden.
0: You – study the VCA, that's right, isn't it? And you recently went back last year and did a speech to the graduating class, which is something that I feel like you only ever see in film and TV. Like that happened in your real life. What was that like?
1: It was quite funny actually because, um, look, I, I'm not a vindictive person but I certainly remember very clearly that um, I never received an award from my like, two years at, at oh. film school from memory both years that I was there the person that gave the graduating um speech was a um a white male director um so it it did feel really good to be asked and um I went about as I was sort of putting together my words I kind of just thought like fuck what would I have loved to have been told um like i the, the the day after my sort of graduating night when i didn't win any prizes i just wept for 10 minutes maybe longer um and um and it took some t- a number of years to realize that oh uh, um everyone has a path and that it it's okay if it doesn't look like the thing that everyone Keeps telling you it should look like, which for me at the time was, you know, make an award winning short, which will lead to your feature. And, but I think that idea of it needs to look like this um, was something that works for me in a variety of ways because, like, I don't look like what a director is supposed to look like. So, um, yeah, and that was something that I really want to drill home to the students. Like, it's, it, it's such a long path it's so hard but um you know I guess part of the journey is you chipping away at this lump of a road to um yeah figure out where it leads
0: because you after you did graduate you went on to win awards in your career so fuck the VCA like (laughs) they missed out on that one um and you've gone on to direct tv um both like teen comedy drama and I was going to say adult drama but that sounds like porn doesn't it if you put adult in front of anything you haven't done porn that I know of <laughs> up to you um and but what what did that path look like for you from graduating to becoming an award-winning director what hmm. yeah how did it look well i and screenwriter um... sorry
1: Yeah, I was really drawn to television, um, except when I finished VCA, television was really uncool and no one wanted to do it.
0: The television books behind me, I was was at uni studying criticism and I wanted to write about TV, probably roughly the same time. I'm in my mid-30s and everyone was like, no, you've got to write about film. It's all about film. And I was like, TV is coming. It is changing. You don't understand. And no one got it. And now everyone watches talks lives breathes tv yeah
1: exactly um so it was actually quite hard to figure out how to get into television because um it was it, it it was just its own little world like not a lot of the producers crossed over and you know um all of that but i uh i mean i guess the the simple story is i started like doing work experience, and then eventually note taking in writers' rooms, which um, and at the same time I would write my own stuff and write it and direct my own shorts. Um, and uh, but my I guess my biggest thing is I wanted to get on set, so I shadow directors. And I think the thing is the uh, the thing that I did a lot of is I basically had all of my eggs in all of the baskets. I I am not one to believe. Um, I, I don't have the focus and patience to just be focused on the one project. So yes, I was note taking, but I was also looking at what funds were available to me as, um, as a writer director, either writing stuff for development or, directing short films and documentaries, which was something that I also did. Um, and then I was also looking at what grants were available to me through the talent escalator programs at Screen Australia for shadowing directors. And basically at some stage, like I would have a number of applications in for whatever I could get my hands on. And um and slowly, by doing that, by asking questions, by speaking to these faceless people at screen agencies, um, they start to invest in you as a person and in your journey. Um, by forcing yourself to ask questions, it starts, like your dream starts feel starts to feel less scary and less um, hypothetical. It just becomes a thing that you will eventually do um if um yeah if if things happened in the right way um having said that it still took me six years after film school for me to get hired on my you know first directing job Uh, but since then uh I've been yeah very grateful that it's been constant
0: and how long did you have this dream was this something that you always knew are you the kind of Were you the kind of kid who was like, I want to make that stuff that I'm watching on this screen? Or were you someone who maybe studied or at school did media studies and you were like, oh, that would be interesting, that would be cool, I'd like to do that?
1: I did. Uh, I I first remembered having this desire in I want to say when I was 11 years old um, cause my dad gave me his old video camera and, you know, I, um, you know, in my first sleepover, I, for some reason we were watching Scream, you know, it was in the late nineties. I was going to say, cause it was
0: the late nineties. What else would you be watching?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, we just, uh, decided to remake the opening sequence and it really took hold. Like, I still remember the feeling of that, like so viscerally, Um, But the thing is, I really repressed this desire for another 10 years, I think, quite easily. Um, I did, I dabbled in arts commerce at university and then, but I quit that and transferred into a media degree at RMIT. And it was there, I was able to, in one of the electives, um, I had an encouragement of a you know one of my tutors who was like you should apply to VCA and that was all it, it took like I just needed that person to tell me it's okay and you should do it which is a validation that I think I sometimes still look for but I'm, I'm trying to teach myself to give me that validation
0: it's hard though when you've for like what 21 years you haven't had that self validation. Yeah. Sometimes you, you need somebody to be like, you can do that. And you're like, oh my God, I can do that. Yeah. Happens to me all the time. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean I think it's quite a female thing, isn't it? To Ooh. um the directing is um something that uh assumes like the job itself assumes the right to impose your worldview onto a story, which is what makes it distinct and so important. But um, that comes, that's a very clear sense of bravado that um, I don't think comes naturally to women.
0: I also think there's a class element for me personally anyway, coming from a like deeply working class background, doing something creative is mm. like perhaps not considered a career. So you'd need to follow some set path of a nine to five job and then you have a Mm. career but
1: yeah totally i had no idea what it looks like you know um i don't think i really knew until i started doing uh, tv because i certainly had no idea how much you know directors made or got paid or anything um so i think i was very lucky in that i was strangely deluded for <laughs> a long time that it was going to happen. But certainly my 20s were, um, oh, it was a bit of a trash pit of um, constantly disappointing my parents to the extent that they just couldn't even, like, talk about me to <laughs> family members back in Taiwan anymore. I was a very disgraced daughter.
0: Oh, God, how how does it feel <laughs> reflecting on that now?
1: Um, oh, I'm just relieved to be honest. I'm I'm so relieved I um because they they value I guess they value income and having a stable job. So they're thrilled and um, proud in a sense uh, that I'm able to do something that's very western and cool that they can brag about. Uh, and has a decent income, <laughs> but certainly they um, they were barely tolerating it for a, for a long time. But to their credit, they didn't stop me.
0: Do you think they could have though by that point? Yeah, that's a
1: really good point. Maybe not. Um, I guess I've never given myself the credit for that. I've always kind of just gone, oh, they hated it, but they tolerated it. But maybe they did try and stop me and I just still barreled
0: through. I mean, it sounded like that you knew what you wanted to do from when you were ma- remaking Scream. And as you said, your path was divergent and different, but you got there eventually. So no matter what speed bump came along, whether it was your parents or an arts commerce mm-hmm. degree, you were going to get there eventually. But
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think they could, I mean, I was a terrible um, <laughs> arts commerce student. <laughs> I don't think, I think the worst grades I ever got in anything was, um, in that one year I spent, um, (laughs) so which, which would have come as a shock to them as well. Like I'm not, um, I don't fail most things (laughs) I do. Yeah.
0: Well, unless you're like deeply unhappy or dissatisfied, right? Like you said you were taking time to write now. How is it, switching back and forth between writing and directing because you do both and I know that you've done some EP work as well. What is it like swapping back and forth?
1: I think it depends on when you catch me because uh, I was so excited to go because I just spent, you know, um, over a year basically going back to back with directing different shows. So to go into uh, lockdown, essentially writing this show um, that I had been um, uh, thinking about for a little while. It was ex- was so exciting and um, to just think about story in its most pure form without all the other logistical, budget, time, people, management side of things, which is what a lot of directing is. Uh, but now we're two and a half months later. I'm kind of like, oh, my God, I can't. I just I can't be with myself anymore. <laughs> like I need to go out and problem solve and actually like make it happen instead of imagining it. So, you know, as someone who has a very short attention span and um can't stay still, like in the one place, uh being able to switch between the two hats is incredibly um it's like a it's like oxygen. I think it rejuvenates my passion for the other thing that I'm not doing. I feel that. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I will say that, uh, you know, my first hat and my first love is directing. I, I love working with writers um, and I, w- whereas I would only write for myself to direct. Because
0: yeah. it's, Filmmaking, making TV, any screen work is deeply collaborative. Before, I'm going to read out the arrogant aunt question in a minute, um, which kind of relates to this. But the collaborative nature of screen work, how are you going without that?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm, going to say I've been surprised at how difficult I'm finding it because, you know, I've... (laughs) I probably am inclined to describe myself as a bit of a curmudgeon at times who likes to be alone and, you know, I find small talk uh, a bit irritating and hard, Um, but I've had to have all these creative meetings via Zoom and not being able to feel the sense and creative energy of someone like in the same space has been um, – I really miss it. Yeah, I've um, I COVID has made me realise how much I value community, and how important it is in creativity. So I'm really looking forward to starting pre and just being able to more, hopefully, <laughs> being able to be in the same office and space as other people.
0: Because um, there is a tactility, yeah. obviously, to directing and filmmaking that is being in person and behind a camera and seeing – and even the physicality of performers, right, and having them there that has been taken away. I can't –
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And even having like, you know, costume meetings and makeup meetings where like technically all the information is there in front of you, but I miss um, the little additional – ideas that comes from um and it's an indescribable quality but it just comes from being able to assess a person in the real world all the little nuanced um aspects of character because you know i really believe in the whatever the role you are like what you as a person bring to the work like it's not just about your ideas it's about your life experiences and how you move through the world. So I, I feel completely robbed of that through zoom. Um, but uh, I guess, you know, it's the, it's a new normal.
0: So uh, I'm going to do the arrogant aunt question now. So arrogant art is the segment where we answer listener questions with an authority we don't have. It's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. So the question we've got today is from Caroline. So Caroline asks, I struggle with work-life balance at the best of times. So with us talking about the new normal, Corrie, I guess this is an important question. So struggling with work-life balance at the best of times, but when I'm working from home, it's even harder. I take on more, I work longer hours, and I never give myself a break. Do you have any tips on finding balance at this time? Yeah, uh- How are you going with it? because I suck.
1: <laughs> I don't know if I have ever done it properly. I'm just trying to think how to answer that question.
0: And I think it depends on what, I guess, it kind of talking to what you've discussed earlier about feeling like your work as a creative is part of you intrinsically. It's hard to separate that and create a work-life balance when work is your life and you feel that passion about it. But I think I work both – and so stereo listeners would already know this. I work both a, an office job, like a nine-to-five a few days a week, and then I do writing and podcasting and creative stuff on the side. So for me, working from home on both of those things is a lot, and I struggle even on the de- – day. like I'm just doing too many hours. Like I automatically get up and sit behind the computer – And because I'm beholden to other people at that office job, I feel a lot of pressure and I'm doing very, very long hours on that. So by the time I get to my creative stuff that does give me a sense of purpose and feel more important to me, I am less motivated and I don't have a whole lot left. And that feels like that's the life part that I'm losing. Not so much being social and seeing people because not unlike you, I'm curmudgeonly, Lee. I stay home. I watch TV with my dogs. That's about it. But yeah, I'm struggling, so I don't know if I'm the best person to ask for advice on that.
1: I think what, you know, what I will say is um uh yes, absolutely. This um I I find the concept of work-life balance a little bit of a myth um in the job i do in that um the the work quotation marks is part of life because the work is an expression of yourself and you know my my work is is me being able to express my identity and my feelings and um my how i perceive the world and and to me that is an expression of life so finding a balance um uh per se has uh, has always felt um a little uh, um, yeah uh, almost like a misguided concept and a way to make ourselves feel bad uh what i have discovered through covid is trying to adopt habits that um, aren't directly work in that I'm not at the computer typing or, you know, I'm not um, on a Zoom or whatever um, practical work looks like. Um, But, you know, these habits that I think ultimately lead to me doing better work um, because COVID has... You know meant that being at home a little bit more um means that I can try and discover whatever these new things are, and they include um looking after some plants has been incredibly uh meditative almost, so I've always really resented the idea of nesting inside. A home because I think it comes from a some commitment weird commitment stuff and the idea of being tied down to a place. Um, But I kind of have had to embrace being tied down, so I went and got all these, you know, nice big lush plants. And um, sometimes I just spend like my Sunday mornings polishing the leaves, Uh, and it that is meditative, incredibly meditative, and um, just giving myself the twenty minutes of allowing my brain brain to just be curious and um investigate whatever it, it 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 is it needs to do even if that thing is going completely blank uh, cuz um like is it is is polishing plants life well maybe not but <laughs> but it's uh i i don't know it's that thing again when you're just um trying to give yourself Oxygen,
0: yeah. Right, you're trying to create balance in some capacity and if it's stepping away, then that's the best. We're also, you mentioned before you don't have children. I don't have children either. So I think for people with kids, it's a whole different conversation. Um, work and life would definitely bleed together yeah. a lot more. I will not even pretend to offer advice on that, but as a childless person with a couple of dogs, taking them out, side for walks when they're good and I'm not just training them, um, is fun or just going out for a wander. My psych tells me to do that all the time. Don't just take the dogs, go for your Mm. own walk, whether it's 10 minutes a time. Um, so I'm mainly just putting this on record now so that I do have to start doing that. So (laughs) advising somebody else to do that means that I have to do it myself. Um, yeah, otherwise I think, like you were saying, it's about creating your own routines and stepping away so that you can come back. Yeah. Feeling more rejuvenated. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think um because I did spend there was a patch of time where i was, was I was getting so good at making myself feel bad about whatever work this work life balance. And I do really believe that um you know, I, I just, I don't, I think it's, a, again, a female thing. Like, I don't think I've ever heard my male friends fret about their work-life balance. So that's why I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to that concept. But at the same time, it's um, maybe I'd word it a little bit differently in that, um, you know, what are some ways where you can feed your brain? And I don't mean intellectually, I mean, you know, emotionally and whether it's going out for walks or polishing plants or, you know, I also really love cooking and that's, again, just a way of allowing my brain to go into a completely different direction to what it normally spends its day doing. Um, And for some people that could be like connecting with family members or, yeah. So brain food is uh, my advice. (laughs)
0: I enjoy cooking too for those reasons. And one thing else I do enjoy, and this will probably lead us into our hysteria shout-out where we ask our guests to shout-out something that's been giving them joy recently, not just patting their plants, unless that is your shout-out, in which case that's fine. Um, My other thing has been literally putting on some good pop music and either cleaning around the house or just like dancing around the house while I'm emptying the recycling bin and just having such a good time. So there's two albums that I want to give a shout-out to. The first is Chloe and Hallie's Ungodly Hour. So they're a sister duo who were picked up by Beyonce after they covered her on YouTube. They covered Pretty Hurts. Um, Hallie has been announced as she was cast as Ariel in the upcoming Little Mermaid movie, and that created, like, a yep. small controversy on social media. That's what Wikipedia said, which is so <laughs> stupid. Um, but that's how
1: you know you're famous, <laughs> you
0: call it. <laughs> but they're just so talented they like actually sound like angels, and it's just there's so many bangers on the album and so many good songs and the other album that is like pure kind of disco pop that I've been loving is Jewel Leaper's future nostalgia, so chucking that mm-hmm. on listening to physical, which was one of the singles off it is just it's just so fun to just shake your bum around the house and get moving. I know it's sounds like I'm some yeah. kind of, like, co- commercial, like an ad of, like, someone cleaning the <laughs> house. But that's literally what I've been doing. Whatever makes you happy. Corey. what's your yeah. shout-out? Uh, my shout-out is to the Babysitter's Club. Yes, I uh, haven't watched it yet. Tell me, tell me. <laughs>
1: um, I think I, I watched the three or four eps on the weekend and – on the weekend. And, um, uh, I mean, a few things uh, – I was an enormous fan of it like I think many people of that um of my generation when I was uh maybe 10 or 11 and it was one of the first books I read to learn English so I think I have a certain um attachment to it like that's linked to identity in a very strange way and the show is uh the the purest Tonic you can give your soul right now. And it is, uh, I, I can't recommend it enough as a, it, it is escapism, but it is um, incredibly contemporary in some of the issues they address, even though it's not an issues show. Uh, and it's, you know, colorful and bubblegum, fairy floss, you know, all of the above um, in the one little package. Yeah. It's it's really beautiful.
0: In my other bookcase on the other so you can see there's one behind me. One in the hallway. I've got all of the babysitters club books. They went from my childhood cuz I always wanted them but my parents would never buy me them. I went and visited my cousin and read hers every like second weekend. I would read her books cuz uh-huh. her parents would buy them. So I found the entire collection at an op shop at a rural town oh. that I lived in for a little while and I was just like I don't like burst into tears. I'm like, how much? I'll take, here's all my money, like, take it. So I just have this beautiful <laughs> bubblegum colored collection in my hallway of those books. Yeah. I'm saving the Netflix show for. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about you. Did you do an attachment on the leftovers?
1: Yes, I did. I'm yeah. currently
0: watching it for the first time because I'm some kind of weird oh. martyr for apocalyptic. Double down. Yeah. You're in the middle of an apocalypse. Why not double <laughs> down? How was that?
1: Uh, amazing. I was a. Uh... I mean, I think it's one of the best shows that has been made in the last decade, to be honest. So I was already an enormous fan of it. And then I heard they were shooting in Melbourne for its final season and, um, you know, had to interview a couple of times, but somehow managed to, um, yeah, spend some time on it, shadowing the director. And, uh, you know, I've I've learned a lot and just seen that. HBO machine at work was amazing but also just as a fan of um you know meeting actors and going read-throughs and whatnot was um I was trying not to fangirl and you know trying to stay grounded and um learn what I was there you know what I was being paid to do but (laughs) yeah it's uh it's I'm quite intrigued what it would feel like watching it now during a pandemic because it's a very depressing show. Yeah,
0: it feels like a lot, like mm-hmm. talking about stepping back and having relaxing time. But I can't stop watching it as well. And I am –
1: Yeah, what are you up to?
0: Just finished season one last night. So we're starting.
1: Oh, yeah, season two is – I from I think season two is the best season. But – um. I mean, you've got to go through to the end because season three, the ending really pays off whatever, everything that's set up. And you, I started to realise that it was essentially a show about storytelling because in season three it allowed characters to just break out into these monologues about something that happened to them in the past. And um, as a writer, just realising Um, again sort of drilling home home the importance and responsibility of stories um, that we carry with us and how that impacts our future you know I think that show really summarized it beautifully I
0: can't wait but also yeah it's a it's a lot it is a lot Um, I'll tell Mm. you how you got that job by the way because you're actually really good so don't ever say again Somehow I got the job. You got it because you deserved it and you're incredible. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, a part of Sisteria. It's been amazing to talk to you. I hope your plants continue to blossom and that your career does as well. How lame was that? I don't want to end with that.
1: <laughs> no, thanks for inviting me. That was really fun.
0: Sisteria is supported by the Melbourne City Council Arts Grants Program and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Subscribe to Sisteria everywhere and follow us at Pod. Links to everything discussed in the episode are available at SisteriaPodcast.com. Our theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's from her album, Spacings. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we hope you tune in again soon we we'll